0: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, sexual assault, and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: It was 5 in the morning on March tenth, 1963. The Bakersfield Police Station, about 115 miles north of Los Angeles, bustled with officers. This morning was particularly hectic as everyone reeled from the previous night's tragedy. Their attention was on one man, LAPD
0: officer Carl Hettinger. The 28-year-old cop sat slouched in an office chair. He was freshly cleaned up after enduring one of the most terrifying nights of his life. He had been witness to the murder of an officer, his own partner. Now he awaited the next in a long line of formal questioning.
1: Carl replayed the events from several hours prior in his mind. He could still feel the cool air on his skin and smell the stench of onions. He heard the gunshot that laid his partner out flat.
0: Carl's eyes squeezed shut. The terror was fresh as he recalled running for his life. Darkness enveloped him, ruptured only by the white-hot flames of gunfire. The crack of those weapons still echoed in his ears, and he was certain he heard two different types of gunfire. But as he tightened his focus on these details, he lost his grasp of others.
1: He knew he'd heard two guns, but their exact timing was hazy. Sometimes he thought they'd fired off simultaneously— but other times he thought they might have fired one after the other. But these details mattered, so Carl tuned out the background clamor and concerned glances.
0: He strained to maintain focus. The events of that night were his story to tell. If he couldn't get it straight, justice could slip through the cracks, and his partner's killer might go free.
1: Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast.
0: I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case.
1: You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify.
0: This is our final episode on the 1963 Onion Field killing. Last week, we covered the story of a pair of rogue gunmen who kidnapped two LAPD officers and executed one of them. This week, we'll hear the conflicting stories. We'll also look into the tumultuous trial and how this case changed law enforcement protocols forever.
1: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
0: Seven hours had passed since officers Carl Hettinger and Ian Campbell were kidnapped in Hollywood, and only five hours since the kidnappers had executed Ian. Although Carl had washed himself after his grueling escape, he still wore his muddy slacks with the pants leg ripped up to his thigh.
1: Carl had endured rounds of questioning from his higher-ups, not to mention the stares and hushed tones from fellow officers. Eventually, an auburn-haired detective walked into the room where Carl sat. This man carried himself like a gray wolf in the wilderness. Carl could tell he was the detective in charge.
0: 41-year-old homicide detective Pierce Brooks had experience beyond his years. Brooks had hunted serial killers, sent men to death row, and possessed a level of dedication to the job that bordered on obsession. He was a hunter both in occupation and in spirit.
2: Good morning, Officer Hedinger. I'm Detective Brooks. As I'm sure you know, I'm here to talk to you about last night. You need anything before we begin?
3: I'm okay, thank you. I already called my wife,
2: just hoping to get home soon. I'll try not to take up too much of your time. First, I want to discuss the suspects. So you know, we already got Greg and Cuffs, but Jimmy's still out there. I'm hoping you can tell me what you know about them. Jimmy is on the younger side.
3: I remember he seemed nervous when we pulled him over. He surrendered as soon as he stepped out of the car, put his hands up and everything. But my gun wasn't even drawn. As time went on, he seemed to get angry toward his partner. Tell me about Greg. Greg raised flags from the beginning, everything from the look in his eyes to his apparent fearlessness. He showed no fear the entire time. Even right before he shot Ian out there in that onion field, he said something about the little Lindbergh law, said it in a way like he always knew he was gonna say it, like
2: he'd known all along what would happen. Let's go back to the standoff in Hollywood for a minute. Greg had Ian at gunpoint and Jimmy's hands were in the air. Then, if I understand correctly, you surrendered your weapon? I I did. Why, you'd think it was the wrong call? I can't say for certain. I wasn't
3: there. It was your judgment call. It wasn't my judgment. I didn't know what to do. I I froze, if I'm being honest. It was Ian who told me to give up my
2: sidearm. Mm. Here's what I think. If you hadn't given up your weapon and Greg shot Ian anyway, then and there, that would be on you. I suppose. Now, Carl, I've got some more questions for you, but first I need to tell you something, and you might not like hearing it. (sighs) Go ahead. They haven't done a full autopsy yet, but we think that when Greg shot Ian in the face, it didn't hit anything vital. So you're saying... I'm saying that we believe the first shot didn't kill him, but any one of those four bullets to the chest could have. Carl, I need you to tell me who fired those chest shots.
3: (sighs) I saw Ian go down after that first shot. I turned and ran. Jimmy shouted something, then the shooting started again. I looked back and saw the flash of gunfire. In the dark, I tried to make out the bullet trails. I believe Greg shot at me and Jimmy fired into Ian's body. Did they shoot at the same time or one after the other?
2: I I think
3: at the same time.
2: And you're positive that Jimmy shot Ian on the ground? I think so. Enough to testify in court? If I need to. Thank you, Carl. That's all I need. I hope you get home soon.
0: Carl hunched over and clasped his hands between his knees. In his calloused palms, he could still feel the handle of his sidearm as he offered it to Jimmy.
1: A few hours later, a police car pulled up outside the station. The officer stepped out and opened the rear door. A scrawny, blue-eyed man emerged. The man's wrists were bound in handcuffs. He tossed his hair aside and grinned.
0: Thirty-year-old Greg Powell had agreed to speak, but only to the, quote, big detective, which referred to the chief deputy who accompanied him to the station. In fact, in the time since his arrest, he hadn't stopped talking to the chief about last night's events.
1: Now it was Brooks's turn to question Greg. So it was decided the interrogation would take place in L.A. Brooks knew he needed to earn Greg's trust, so he did a little extra research in preparation. When Brooks entered the interrogation room to question Greg, he carried Greg's file in one arm and Jimmy's in the other, Greg leaned back in his chair without concern.
2: Before we begin, I want you to know that you can ask for an attorney at any time.
4: Uh, That's all right. Like I said, I trust you.
2: Okay. Now, I understand you were caught up in quite the mess last night. Uh, Can you start by telling me about your friend? Jimmy? He's a madman.
4: Trigger happy. Look at the trouble he's got me in. I hope you guys find him. He killed that cop, you know. Which cop? The one in the onion field. He took those boys hostage and drove us all out there. I kept saying we should turn back, but he wouldn't listen. Once we were all alone in that field, he shot that officer square in the
2: face. Slow down, son. Tell me, was there any more shooting after that? Well,
4: You bet. Once the other guy ran, Jimmy shot after him, too. And shot the one on the ground a few more times. He just kept pulling the trigger. I wasn't going to hang around,
2: so I ran, too. Back the way we came. So Jimmy fired all the shots? Yes, sir. It's good you're telling me this. I want to help you, son. Let's go back a little. How did you meet Jimmy? Through a friend.
4: I don't know him that well. I wish I hadn't asked him to drive to the bar that night. What's that for?
2: Oh, I use a tape recorder to help me remember things. Wouldn't want Jimmy getting some other story out there. Is that okay with you? Sure is. I'm telling
0: nothing but the truth. Brooks wasn't entirely fibbing. He'd recorded parts of Greg's story to keep track of the contradictions between Carl's version as well as Jimmy's, if and when they caught him. In addition, Greg's story countered his extensive record. Between the ages of 16 and 29, Greg had only spent three years outside of prison. Practically his entire adult life was on file.
1: Brooks knew all about Greg before he'd even met him, He knew that Greg was hopeless. He was exactly the type of man Brooks wanted to take down.
0: Greg's story was also undermined by the information in Jimmy's file. The pair's short but telling history was all right there. They were wanted on suspicion of several armed robberies from the previous week.
1: For now, Brooks kept his focus on Greg. He was curious about the things Greg said before he pulled the trigger on Ian.
0: You ever heard of the Little Lindbergh Law? Brooks wasn't sure what that piece of legislation had to do with anything. While in the interrogation room, he prodded Greg.
2: One last thing, Greg. Do you know what the Little Lindbergh Law is? Can't say I do. You've never heard of it? I think I can figure it
4: out. Charles Lindbergh's son was kidnapped and killed back in the 30s. They wrote some new law after that, because... They always write new laws when it's famous people involved. Now they gas kidnappers.
2: I appreciate you telling me that. Well, I'd better let you get some rest. See you soon, son.
1: As Brooks walked back to his office, he had a much clearer picture of Greg's recklessness. Greg was correct that the Federal Kidnapping Act, also known as the Little Lindbergh Law, qualified the crime of kidnapping for capital punishment. But this was true only in some states, including California, and only if the kidnapper caused great bodily harm to their victim. Greg probably killed Ian because he thought he'd face the death penalty.
0: Because Greg misunderstood the law, Ian Campbell died in the onion field. To make it all worse, Greg had taunted Ian he wanted to see the hope drain from Ian's eyes. So Brooks didn't want Greg to see the outside world ever again.
1: It wouldn't be until Monday that the press would release the breaking story on Officer Campbell's murder with headlines running mugshots of Greg as well as the still at large Jimmy Smith. But word had already gotten out that Jimmy was the most wanted man in all of California.
0: Some time later, after rounds of questioning, retelling in some bureaucratic formalities, Carl finally went home. When his very pregnant wife asked him how he was doing, he politely smiled and declined to say much. He climbed into bed where he tossed and turned all night.
1: Meanwhile, Detective Brooks climbed into his own bed after a 20-hour workday, but at 10 p.m., his phone rang.
5: Detective Brooks, we need you back at the station. Our boys in Bakersfield have Jimmy Smith.
2: I'm on my way. You tell those boys I want Jimmy alive.
0: As Brooks threw his clothes back on, he imagined police cars as they hurled through the night to Jimmy's location. With tensions high, Brooks hoped that the arresting officers controlled themselves. Heated tempers could spell death. And if Jimmy died, He'd never have to face consequences.
1: Up next, Jimmy Smith faces the music.
6: Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for Season 2 of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs all acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in Season 2 of the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. And now,
0: back to our story.
1: On March 10, 1963, the investigation into the murder of Officer Ian Campbell ran full steam ahead. One of the suspected killers, Greg Powell, was already in custody. He'd pinned the blame entirely on his partner, Jimmy Smith, who was still at large. Lead detective Pierce Brooks knew Greg was lying, but earned Greg's trust as a tactic. Soon, Brooks would have the chance to question Jimmy
0: around ten thirty that night jimmy walked into a lodge known as mom's rooming house in bakersfield he had washed the blood and dirt from his aching feet at a service station earlier but he was still a mess when he checked into the boarding house
1: jimmy went to the shared washroom to prepare for bed little did he know he wouldn't be staying the night 10 minutes after he checked in the police received an anonymous tip on his location soon The law closed in on Mom's rooming house.
0: The door to the washroom crashed open. A small army of officers flooded inside and threw Jimmy to the floor. Jimmy, always quick to surrender, held out his empty hands. But the cops taunted him. They begged him to give them an excuse to kill him.
7: Don't shoot me! I'm not resisting!
1: The seconds dragged on. Jimmy couldn't tell if he was dead or not. Then he heard the metal clink of handcuffs. At least for that moment, he knew he'd live.
0: The cops ransacked his room. One of them discovered a police sidearm. They showed it to Jimmy and interrogated him.
7: Is this the gun you stole from those cops? I didn't kill anybody, it was old Greg. He made me do it. I didn't even fire a shot.
1: The officers dragged Jimmy outside then shoved him into a police cruiser and drove him to the Bakersfield station
0: at 3:30 a.m. detective brooks entered the room where they held jimmy brooks noted how different jimmy looked in person compared to his mugshot the old photo portrayed a hardened young man who resigned himself to the street the jimmy he met today was softer more mature but also defeated
1: Much like Greg, Jimmy was all too eager to talk. Even though Brooks already knew everything in Jimmy's file, he wanted to hear Jimmy's version. He needed to assess Jimmy the way he'd done Greg. Brooks rolled his tape recorder.
7: I'm telling you, this is all Greg's fault. We're both going to the gas chamber anyway, so why would I lie?
2: I'm not jumping to conclusions, Jimmy, but I have spoken with Greg as well as Officer Hettinger, the one who got away from you. They told me about last night. And what? They say it was my fault that I shot that other cop? I'm here for the truth, Mr. Smith, but forget last night for now. I want to start from the beginning. Tell me how you got hooked up with Greg.
0: Jimmy explained how he had just been released on parole the month before. He was free from a prison cell, as well as the thing that kept him there. Heroin. He feared dying in a prison more than anything. So he attempted an honest life and set out looking for a job.
1: His prospects were meager. The state set up a job for him. A car wash that paid a dollar an hour for every 12 hour shift. Jimmy wanted something more sustainable. So he left that job. Soon he was strapped for cash.
0: Jimmy started to give up on a decent living. He was getting desperate. So on March 1st, he met with an old acquaintance who went by the name Small. Small was known for shady dealings. He introduced Jimmy to his so-called work partner, a man with a long neck
1: named Greg. Right away, Jimmy knew Greg was bad news. He'd known guys like Greg all his life, guys who stole a couple purses, then bragged as though they'd robbed a bank. Still... Determined to survive and stay out of prison, Jimmy went along when Greg invited him and Small for a drive.
0: For the next eight days, Jimmy, Greg, and Small committed a string of robberies. But soon, Jimmy wanted to ditch Greg. He began to realize that Greg was capable of darker deeds. It was only a matter of time before Greg put Jimmy in real danger.
1: But Jimmy needed money. So he promised himself he'd make just one more robbery with Greg, then be finished with him. That brought them to the evening of March 9, 1963.
0: And yet, Brooks thought, Jimmy didn't walk away. Not to mention, although Jimmy brushed over it, Brooks already knew that Jimmy was the driver on four armed robberies he'd pulled with Greg. No one accidentally pulls four armed robberies over a week. Brooks saw Jimmy as a follower, and maybe even a coward. Jimmy stuck with Greg all the way to the onion field.
1: Brooks had yet to hear Jimmy's version of that night. He believed Carl's story and knew Greg was a liar. Now, he needed to see how Jimmy's claims fit in. Did you know there would be gunfire at the onion field?
7: No, I didn't think Greg would actually
2: shoot. He once told me.
7: If you ever shoot a cop, save a bullet for yourself.
2: What did you think would happen then?
7: I... I don't know. All I could think was that I never wanted to see Greg again. When it was all over. Whatever it was. So tell me, what did happen? After Greg shot the first guy in the face, he shot after the other one. He emptied a gun at him. But that guy ran. Seemed like he got
2: away. It was dark though. Were those the only shots fired? Yeah. And what happened next? How did you and Greg get separated? Greg
7: wanted to go after the cop who got away. I lied and said I was going to drive back to the road and grab him there. Greg believed me, so I got in the car and just drove away. Eventually, I ditched the car and walked.
1: Brooks left Jimmy in the interrogation room. As he made his way down the hall, he tried to piece together Jimmy's motive... Jimmy had said he believed he would get the death penalty no matter what, but in his story, he never mentioned the shots to Ian's chest. Brooks sensed that Jimmy was his own worst enemy.
0: That night, Carl Hettinger showed up at the station for roll call. He wanted to prove that he was fully recovered and ready to return to work, so he went out with a new partner, ready to make a difference again. Nice to have you along, Officer Hettinger.
3: Nice to be long
0: See that truck at the light looks like the boosted ride that went on over the radio. Let's stop them Where are you coming from driving home from work? Is there a problem? We're looking for a stolen vehicle. I Think you've got the wrong person officer uh, wait here for a second, please You okay officer Henninger?
3: I'm I'm okay. I I, I just need a moment.
4: You don't look okay. Let me finish up here, and we'll be back on the road.
1: Okay. Something about the traffic stop froze Carl in his boots. He couldn't catch his breath or stop shaking. He thought things would be better back at the station, but once there, he noticed other officers giving him skeptical looks.
0: He told himself that he was being paranoid. But soon, his fears were confirmed. Only five days after Ian's murder, a veteran officer named John Powers published a memo that circulated all the stations in L.A. County. Carl felt that the memo was essentially about him.
1: The text proclaimed, "...surrender is no guarantee of an officer's safety or the safety of others." including that of his partner and other brother officers. It seemed like a heated reaction to Ian's unfair death and denounced Carl's surrender of his sidearm. It was quickly nicknamed the Hettinger Memorandum.
0: The memo was divisive among the LAPD. It contradicted one of the greatest police axioms, that the best judge of a situation is the officer on the scene, This belief ruled that it didn't matter what the press or the public felt about police actions. If an officer made a tough decision, it was the right decision.
1: Carl felt the pressure weigh on him, and Brooks noticed as the two continued their conversations over the next few weeks. As they talked, Brooks could tell the guilt was taking a toll on Carl's health. Over the next year, the young officer would lose weight rarely smile, and according to his physical exam, shrink an inch in height.
0: Even more concerning, over the course of their interviews, Carl walked back details from his story.
3: I said before that Jimmy shot in when he was on the ground, but um, I, I don't know if that's true anymore. You told me you were pretty positive. Well, I'm not,
2: not anymore. I can't fully picture it anymore. Carl, think about this. If you take this back, we can't nail Jimmy for Ian's murder. Uh, I'm sorry. If you're not sure, you're not sure.
0: Brooks was frustrated and disappointed that he couldn't get a reliable story from Carl. The trial was nearing, and with Greg and Jimmy pointing the finger at each other, it was Carl's word that would make or break the case. Still, Brooks felt certain that the two men in custody would pay. He just needed Carl to be well enough to testify.
1: Coming up, the trial begins. Now, back to the story.
0: Greg Powell and Jimmy Smith were in custody for killing Officer Ian Campbell. As the two men blamed each other for the murder, the case headed into trial. The only other witness, Officer Carl Hettinger, had started to crumble under the stress and accusations leveled at him for failing to prevent Ian's death.
1: Despite their animosity, Greg and Jimmy were being tried together. The trial began in July. Later that month, Carl was called to the stand to testify about what he saw on the night of March 9th.
0: Carl recounted his perspective of the standoff in Hollywood, the long drive, Ian's execution, and his escape. When pressed during the cross-examination by the defense attorney, Carl said he didn't know who shot Ian's body on the ground.
5: You had previously identified Jimmy Lee Smith as the one who shot Officer Campbell. What led you to believe that Mr. Smith fired those shots?
3: While I was running And I looked back, I thought I saw Jimmy standing over Ian.
5: But that was an assumption. Uh, You didn't see it, did you?
3: No, sir. I did not see it.
5: When this case is over and you go back to work, what will your duties be?
3: I will be driving for the police chief.
5: You will not be out in the field any longer? Is your competency under examination?
3: No, sir. I'm just following orders
1: the courtroom shifted uncomfortably when the defense attorney questioned carl's competence and the prosecution's side deflated hopes for a quick trial and easy verdict went down the drain now that their only witness officially retracted his initial statement brooks became unsure whether any of the men even knew who fired those kill shots it was like each convinced themselves of their individual stories He feared that justice would be hard to come by.
0: As the trial crawled along, Carl split his time between court, work, and home. He missed the birth of his first child, Laura, due to his duties with the trial. He remembered what Ian had said to him on that fateful night before they ever encountered Greg and Jimmy.
1: It's unlike anything
3: you've ever experienced. Don't let anything keep you from being there.
1: Carl couldn't even relax at home. After a newspaper printed his home address, he began to receive letters from people angry with him. Some called him a coward. He tried to ignore them, but some went as far as to threaten his family.
0: Everything, especially the trial, wore Carl down. Every day, Jimmy and Greg's defense attorneys poked holes in his story. Soon, Carl became a shell of his former self.
1: He at least wouldn't have to listen to the defense much longer. On September 4th, Greg and Jimmy were both found guilty of first-degree murder. Eight days later, the jury dealt them the death penalty. As they slunk back to their cells, Carl felt relieved for the first time in a while. Ian had finally received justice, and Carl was free to put this nightmare behind him. Or so he hoped.
0: For the next several years, Carl drove the police chief. It was a quiet job, but he found that sometimes it was still too much for him. His personal life hadn't improved much either. He refused to talk about his feelings with his wife or his friends. At night, he suffered from nightmares about that fateful night.
1: To make matters worse, Carl had to face the consequences of transgressions that occurred in the years after the trial as he was dealing with all the trauma.
0: In May of 1966, over three years after the Onion Field killing, the LAPD Internal Affairs Office summoned Carl for a meeting. After he waited outside the meeting room for a while, one of the IA investigators called him in. One of the investigators was an old friend who knew about the situation at hand and wanted to help Carl.
7: Carl, me and you were partners before. We're friends, right?
3: Right. So you can tell me, how long have you been shoplifting? Just a few times. I always left money on the counter. But you kept doing it, Carl. You earn a salary. If you're having problems, why didn't you come talk to us about it? I just made a mistake, that's all.
0: Later that day, Carl had a meeting with the Head of Internal Affairs. He was ready to lie and claim it was all a misunderstanding. But during the meeting, the IA chief simply asked Carl if he was willing to sign his resignation. Carl gave up on his plan and agreed. And just like that, he was no longer a police officer.
1: Carl had lost the role that he'd once felt kept him centered, and any chance at a fresh start still wasn't coming. He would soon be dragged into his past yet again.
0: In the summer of 1966, the Supreme Court ruled that a citizen's rights should be read at the time of their arrest. This new Miranda Warning, as it was called, aimed to protect people against police coercion during the entire legal process. Although many agreed that this new protocol was fair, some law enforcement personnel feared this would dredge up old cases.
1: And they were right. Within prison walls, Greg and Jimmy saw their opportunity and appealed. They argued that they had not been read their rights during their arrests and therefore deserved a retrial.
0: Furthermore, Greg claimed that in his initial interrogations with the Bakersfield chief deputy and his officer, no one had made him aware of his rights. Although Brooks had asked if Greg wanted a lawyer during their interrogation, police coercion tactics were in the public eye. Eventually, a California judge considered Greg and Jimmy's points and granted a retrial.
1: With their lives on the line again, Greg and Jimmy finally ended their feud. They were now working together to get themselves out of death row. But their relationship progressed beyond that of two convicts in cahoots, While on death row, guards charged them with unlawful sex acts, which the two men had engaged in with each
0: other. Finally, after two years of chaotic pretrial, Greg and Jimmy's retrial officially began in the spring of 1968. And soon after, Carl took the stand once again. Years of civilian life had changed him. Neither the defendants nor Detective Brooks recognized the former officer, his responses to the new defense attorney were noncommittal and brief.
1: The attorneys attacked Carl's character again. They called him a kleptomaniac and a sociopath. They summoned one of Carl's psychiatrists to try to prove this, but Carl seemed to let it all wash over him.
0: Greg took the stand a final time. For all his scheming and plotting, he had one final trick to play for the prosecution.
5: When did you decide to kidnap two officers in Hollywood? On the advice of
4: my counsel and based on the 5th and 14th Amendments, I declined to answer.
1: Later, Jimmy delivered his final word. He had no defense for himself and only sought pity.
7: I should have stopped him from killing that cop. I don't even know if I want to
6: live anymore.
0: In early November of 1969, Jimmy Smith was sentenced to life imprisonment, while a month later, Greg Powell was once again sentenced to death. However, their ultimate fates still weren't settled. In
1: 1972, California temporarily ruled that executions were unconstitutional, and Greg's sentence was commuted to life in prison. Against all odds, he avoided the gas chamber... Although he never left prison alive, his parole was denied 11 times before he died in 2012 at the age of 79.
0: In 1982, Jimmy Smith had won his parole, which sparked public outrage. However, Jimmy was no longer able to sustain a life outside prison. He suffered occasional bouts of homelessness and repeatedly returned to jail due to his drug addiction. He died in prison in 2007 at the age of 76. The question of who fired the kill shots into Ian's chest remains a mystery to this day.
1: Carl gradually overcame his depression and trauma. In 1977, he began working as an assistant to the Kern County Supervisor. He took over the supervisor's position in 1987, then won re-election the following year. His success in politics was short-lived, however. In early 1994, Carl was hospitalized. He passed away at the age of 59.
0: Ian Campbell's death changed law enforcement forever. Officers were trained on safer measures to approach a stopped vehicle. At Ian's funeral the week after his murder, bagpipes were played to commemorate his love for the instrument. This began a well-known tradition to honor LAPD officers killed in the line of duty. The tragedy of the onion field will never be forgotten.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We will be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on this case, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Onion Field by Joseph Wamba extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: If we live till next time.
1: Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Daniel William Gonzalez, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseff. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Kai Jordan, Brian Kim, Melissa Medina, Julian Smith, Laith Walschlager, and Jen Wong. Solved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie
6: and Carter Roy. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In Season 2 of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify.